2: Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero
0: Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at Radio Team at BeyondZeroEmissions.org.
2: Good afternoon, you're on the Beyond Zero Emissions Show and my name is Erin Jones. I'm pleased to be with you this week. We've got another very full show, as always. Um, and talking about one of the things that I've certainly noticed in recent time is the move to more language with more urgency around it. Um, You know, it's a fine line between keeping people engaged and having them tune out. And so we're going to spend a bit of time today talking about that issue with a psychologist who's doing a lot of work in this area. So I look forward to bringing you that interview that I've just done earlier this afternoon. Later on in the show, we're going to talk about the Save Western Port campaign, which is something that we've been following from time to time, probably over the last 12 months, which is a really important example of a local issue which has global impacts in terms of ongoing and new fossil fuel development. So without further ado, I think we better get on with the show because we've got lots of content to cover. Um, As always, if you want to communicate with me, Twitter is probably the best place at EJ4573. Always be interested in your comments about the show and, and things that you think that we could maybe cover. But for now, let's get on with the show. Listeners, I'm very pleased today to have a guest on the line, and that's Lynn Bender from Psychologists for a Safe Climate. And we're going to be talking with Lynn about something that I think is particularly interesting, and it's something that I've been thinking about a lot lately, and that's around the language that we use around climate change. And I feel like there has been a bit of a shift more recently to describing the situation as an emergency. And certainly whilst I don't disagree that that it is an an emergency, I kind of want to talk with Lynn and and we're going to tease out the different messaging and and, um, from a psychological perspective what people really respond to. So welcome, Lynn. It's lovely to have you on the line. Hi, Erin. It's lovely to talk to you. So, Lynn, maybe first of all, just give us a little bit of um, insight into you. And so, so you're um, obviously a psychologist and mm-hmm. are concerned about, about climate. So tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about um, Psychologists for a Safe Climate.
0: Well, um, Psychology for a Safe Climate, actually, I think. But it was around the fact that quite a while ago, now I'm not quite sure, um, we realised that people were kind of sleepwalking about this that there there wasn't much endorsement of it being a problem. It was very politicised. It was a bit ho-hum for some people. Oh, yeah, climate change. We're more worried about the economy. So um, some very concerned uh, uh, psychologists, Carol Ride was one of the instigators, thought that psychologists had something to offer. People, psychology in general, has something to offer to this situation, both... Around alerting people to the need for change, action and so forth, and also helping people cope once you realize how clear there is a case for us to be alarmed really. so um, that was I think the where it came from
2: yeah yeah, and this is the kind of the, the balance I suppose, is that um, you know a lot of the research and literature says that you know positive messaging and giving people hope. Um'll we'll allow them to take action what we don 't want is people to kind of go to despair and then just throw their hands up and think well i 'm powerless what you know what 's the point type thing so it 's finding that balance between actually getting people mobilized enough um, mm-hmm. that they actually do take action and and give this issue the urgency and the immediacy that we so desperately need now i mean um but also not getting to a point where people just disengage and think, well, it's too late.
0: Yes. Um, Al Gore famously said people uh, the risk was people went from denial to despair and just skipped any attempt to take action. And I think that's part of it. Also, the human tendency to respond to what seems immediate. OK, I can't pay my bills. I need a better job. I need more money. Um, this government's talking about the economy. I can relate to that, um, but we don't. We're not very geared with our um, fight and flight response to the longer term threat that is not immediate. So while the water's coming out of our taps, the supermarkets full, we can switch on the air conditioner. It becomes very theoretical that we're um, subject to climate change, even when we hear of what happens in places not so far from us anymore but we still say well at least it's not here and tend to stick to worrying about the immediate um concerns which is you know have i packed the kids lunches (laughs) have i paid all the bills etc so that's where we're at we're very linear in our thinking we like to go on as we have before we like to think It's predictable because linearity is predictable. Yesterday we did this, today we'll do the same. We like change to be very, very easy and slow, which most change is not easy. And um, to think of the fact that our whole system's geared to destroying the planet, which is basically the truth, is pretty terrifying. So I think in a way, um, people switching off once from the truth, they don't wanna hear the truth, is very um, very likely and not really so much, oh, we've got to keep massaging the message because they don't want to hear the message. And I think when it becomes apparent that this is really happening and that not doing anything is worse than dealing with something, then people will respond mostly. But while people can get away with just going on as it is and as it seems, They'll try to do that. Mm. Unfortunately.
2: Yeah, I mean, the example that comes to mind for me, um, I, I suppose, is is World War Two, um, mm-hmm. and you know Churchill kind of, you know, getting when you think of the actions that the everyday person had to take in terms yes. of rationing and and those kind of, you know, probably pretty intense um, changes. Yes. Um, that had to happen uh, as part of that that ongoing war effort. Um, I mean, that's the thing I suppose with with climate change. It's such, in some ways, this global problem. And as you say, it's hard for people to kind of get their head around it. Mm. I mean, a lot of the research points to when people have gone through an extreme event, whether it be mm. you know flooding or wildfires or think those things that really bring that immediacy. Mm. Um, can, can suddenly see that but you know it's um, I, I suppose using that analogy of, of World War mm-hmm. Two factors in that situation we had leaders mm-hmm. that, were the, that were leading mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and that's lacking isn't it? Yes and
0: when I think when um, places were feeling the effect of bombs <laughs> and mm. invasion yeah. it was pretty obvious there was a period as You'd know uh, was Chamberlain, he's now famous for not doing anything. Um, where he said, "Let's appe-, he was called the appeaser, so let's placate um, Hitler." And so, even there, you ha- people had to feel it was really going to impact on them, and um, Britain was at risk. And America it took a while to come in to the war as well. There was and it was pretty well the bombing of Pearl Harbour that made Mm. the Americans get on board. So I'm afraid in some ways there's the optimum period of recognising the danger, being affected by it while there's still time to avert the worst catastrophe. And that's the problem we have with what's now called climate change and used to be called more commonly global warming. And... Another problem we have with uh, global warming, climate change, is that there's a lot of disinformation being circulated mm. by people who believe, corporations, etc., that it's in their interest to delay people's awareness. So those powerful entities, coal, um, the Koch brothers in America, um, our own mining companies, even our business council here, They don't want to change things they don't want to disturb business confidence they don't want um and business that is really there's so many people invested in um industries that actually promote climate change such as um, travel industry um, of course coal mining um, other forms of mining use of fossil fuels even to change to electric uh, cars there's an opposition to that um, so we've got you know and that 's also part of the human psyche that um, people are open to the misinformation because it reassures them mm, oh, I suppose that reinforces
2: re- you don 't have to take action this is not hmm. this is not a real issue etc um, hmm. et etc cetera, et cetera. so yeah, people feel like, oh okay, I can just continue to." roll yeah. along as, as normal.
0: Yes. And, and, one of, and there are so many common ways that's done. On a simple level, it's like, oh, well, you as an individual aren't doing much. If you stop, that won't change anything, so you might as well just not worry about it. And a lot of people would say that to themselves. What use am I as an individual? It doesn't matter. And even with voting, people say, well, I'm only one vote. What's the difference? But of course, um, combined, mm. we all make a huge difference. Um, combined, our consumption is a disaster for the planet, and our combined vote can can be helpful or horrendous. So, um, I think that's part of as the individualism we've grown, we've grown to embrace, and that's part of um, the whole economic system we have. Of um, in some ways, we, we're told. Well, we're very powerful as individuals. In other ways, we're told, "Well, you can't do much; you're just an individual." So it's um, it's not conducive to collectively combining. Although that is happening. I mean, on the plus side, of course, there are already plenty of counter movements against that, and plenty of good stuff is happening, and that's that's positive. That's to be to be noted.
2: Yeah. Listeners, you're on the Beyond Zero Emissions show. My name's Erin Jones and we've got Lynn Bender on the line and Lynn is a psychologist and uh is involved in the group Psychology for a Safe Climate. And just going on to those more positive things, Lynn, I mean mm-hmm. there is a lot of organisations, um, particularly that we feature on the show that are doing great work, um, yes. local government uh, and some businesses. You know, there's a lot of businesses oh. that, that see that yeah. this is an issue and are taking action in terms of their own actions and mm-hmm. their supply chains to to, to make change. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, with, we've spoken um, a while back on the show to a councillor from the Darabin Council here in Melbourne, mm-hmm. and they, as a... Uh, as as well as a a number of local governments, have had, um, you know, making the declaration of a climate emergency. Mm. And what was outlined to us in that, and I'd be interested to revisit it, it's probably um, a good six months or or longer since we spoke to that particular councillor at Darabin, Mm. um, that this climate emergency declaration that they were making was going to kind of sit over the top of all the decisions council made. Uh-huh. So, you know, planning considerations, fleet purchases, uh-huh. ev- everything. I mean, that's no, just a couple of little things. Uh-huh. So, you know, there is action being taken there. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, we do try to focus on a lot of the positive stuff because there is yeah. a lot of positive stuff happening. Um, but it's that challenging thing of is it enough? Is it uh-huh. enough and is it happening quickly enough? And
0: Yes. Well, certainly about the speed at which it needs to happen is pretty scary because change does eventually happen. People switched from horses and carts, didn't they, mm. <laughs> to the cars, and there was probably a lot of naysaying around that, excuse the pun. Um, but, in fact, um, the changes are happening. People are. Coal's losing its value, mm. etc. But there are still delaying tactics, plus we... Um, haven't made the social... We haven't joined the dots in our psyches and socially that um, the culture has to change. So when you say the council's putting ahead the climate concerns, the climate impact on their decisions, I think until now, until very recently, probably the predominant decision-making, especially in the Western countries, has been money, the economics of it. Um, you hear um, people saying, how much will the GDP be affected by um, the loss of uh, agriculture? Right? Well, I know, How much will we be affected by not having enough food is the question. And um, the economy and the market have become the most referred to things in any decision-making, um, except it seems for in buying war, wars mm. and gun, war, war machinery. But that's also because... Corporations have a lot of influence. They lobby, they pay, and they get their their needs met. Like the um, National Rifle Association in America wants to promote the sale of their guns, so they pay you know senators to you know not legislate against gun ownership. So with, that's all part of the um, I guess the, the competitive, capitalistic. Capitalism on steroids that we're now into. And we actually have lost track that we live on a planet with finite resources. And without it, we're really, really in trouble mm. without and, it flourishing.
2: Yeah. And, and I think, as you say, you know, a lot of those decisions is what, what will it cost? What will it cost? But mm. what we're not taking into account, but it is changing, is the cost of an activity. And you're mm. certainly seeing from organisations like the big insurers and the mm. um, reinsurers, who kind of insure mm. the insurers, you know, starting to understand and put a cost on the fact that things aren't happening. Um, and you know, every every time there's a natural disaster and we see a huge, you know, flooding event or, or something mm. like that, well, that all goes back onto people's insurance premium. You know, when, when a local government experiences that um, and things like sewage treatment plants have to be replaced and, mm. you know, um, electrical infrastructure, and all those things have a cost. Mm. So, you know, unfortunately, we've been going along in a economic mm. system where the price of commodities that we use and that have gotten us into this situation, mm. the price of them doesn't reflect the cost of them. And that's been getting picked up effectively by the commons. And I suppose that's the other issue that we have in some of those things that you were talking about, you know, sort of this individuality um, Mm. being powerful and being powerless. Mm. Um, It's that kind of costing, well, how do we capture that then and actually have the true cost of um, the activities we undertake, the Mm -hmm. products we purchase, uh, so that their true cost to the environment and yes. to their cost of production is, is actually a, a real reflection.
0: Well, you know, the analogy I'm thinking of is um, if you were burning your furniture for the fire, you'd say, oh, this is cheap, we don't have to pay anything, we've already got these chairs, but you don't have them anymore because you've burnt them. Um, and in a way, we're doing that with our resources, with our atmosphere that's getting increasingly polluted with CO2, um, with the general pollution from coal, with the loss of trees, um, with, with the uh, destruction of habitat and species, we're, we're burning our furniture and saying this is cheap. Um, and it's part of that notion of uh, that the, the, the earth is so vast, it's infinite. And that goes back to when, I guess, centuries ago, it did seem pretty vast to people. Um, and pretty infinite. So, um, part of that is education. We we are very ill-educated. The other thing that really strikes me when you're talking about language, initially they they called it climate uh, global warming, and then when there was cool days, everyone say ha ha, where's the global warming? So. I think science, which is always very cautious about alarming people by its findings, it usually talks about tendencies, trends, etc. Um, was unwilling to say catastrophes were related to global warming, other than increased likelihood, increased intensity. To so the average person, they switch off. They they either hear, "Look, these storms are because of global warming," or they're not, and um, were very headline oriented I think and it's confusing when scientists, scientists talk about probabilities but scientists are now getting more alarmed and they, they change the nomenclature to climate change and then now it's become climate catastrophe which really incorporates the events that occur and um, climate emergency which says well we've actually got to respond because that's what you do in an emergency you respond what, in whatever way you can. So I think that that naming's good. Um, the only risk is it becomes, we become habituated and say, oh, yeah, climate emergency, last year was the hottest year, this year's the hottest year, next year will be the hottest year. And we get terribly blasé. That's a problem. I think collectively speaking, I don't feel that way. I'm quite alarmed. But collectively, there's a blaseness I feel, overtly anyway. Mm. And, and that's the problem. People need to be as alarmed about climate change as they seem to get about uh, money matters. So I can recall a big election issue used to be how much petrol prices yeah. were going up per gallon. I was just and thinking that, you knew. know, that something you're...
2: like that happens and people are up in arms and there's, you know, um, well, I was going to say there's people on the streets. The fact is we have had significant people on the streets with these um, student and other mm. um, protests uh, and really, kind of, you know, bringing those things to the forefront. But but you're right. I mean, for a lot of people, this is kind of abstract and not part of their, the day-to-day fabric of their mm. lives. I mean, for myself, and and you and people that are kind of really engaged in this, it, it's something that you're thinking about all the time and thinking about well. with your own actions. But you know, I think there is also a fairly large size. Um, part of the population, and hopefully that's decreasing,
0: mm. but that doesn't
2: think of the immediacy of, of, of
0: no. where we are at. And it, it, it's, I've heard people say, Look, I, I know about global warming, but one person actually said to me, I, I, Of course, I, I believe in it, but I love global warming. I love it when it's warm. <laughs> and <Yeah. laughs> um, you thought, Where do you start with that? Um, and you know even with the voting i've gone to quite a few now quite a few presentations to public town hall type things on the on the um, election and if you look at the media there is an attempt to turn that round into an agenda that the current government and then the opposition too probably is comfortable with so let's talk about the economy the surplus um, tax credits, tax um, lowering, let's talk about education let's talk about um, wage rights and they're all very important but if you're on the Titanic and it's heading for the iceberg it's not time to, to rearrange the furniture there and to make it all comfortable and nice make sure everyone gets equally treated on the Titanic which actually didn't happen but um, It's really time to to look at the big picture. And I'm quite disappointed at the mainstream focus in reporting, electioneering, and not challenging the focus that's still about money.
2: Mm. Yeah, exactly. Um, And in some ways, that's why, unfortunately, things that don't easily fit into a numeric accounting Mm. method tend to you know what well, 's the same what can't be measured doesn't the same, but i can't think what it is you know if you can't measure it it won't change yeah. and and we i mean we can measure it we can measure things like you know c o two in the atmosphere but yeah. but again that becomes quite an abstract thing for people what um you know i've kind of said to people in conversations at different times is you know especially people that might be quite have quite um well, views that I may not share about things like refugees, uh, Mm -hmm. I kind of think, you wait. Like, Mm -hmm. if if you're concerned now about, you know, things like border protection, you you wait till, you know, these countries that are north of us, places like Bangladesh and very low-lying countries, Mm -hmm. when we're looking at mass displacement of Mm -hmm. peoples, um, you know, the whole the stability that we've experienced relatively um, Mm -hmm. and certainly at a, you know, world climate level, um, Mm. we've never known. You know, we're in new territory. um, And that's the thing that you kind of... uh, It's that challenging thing of the balance with, yes, getting people to take action and having time to take action before we're Mm. actually... um, Locked into some physics that are outside of our control. I mean, most, Mm -hmm. I suppose, most issues that we've dealt with in the world have been created by humans and able to be stopped by humans. But the fact Mm. is, with these natural systems, you know, um, and tipping points and and Mm. things like that, we actually get into a situation that even if there's is massive action, um, that starts to be coming of diminishing value as time goes goes forward.
0: Yes, I I am, though, inspired by the youth because um, they're saying, look, we're not going to mess around with false hope, false constructions of the future that won't be relevant to us. We want you to do something. Um, And I think um, that's been quite threatening to our rather aged, usually male, politicians. Mm. And they have sort of tried to denounce it and belittle it. But it's worldwide, and we can thank Greta Thunberg for that. And she was just one person sitting there Mm. in front of the Swedish parliament every Friday. So, on the other hand, we should be spurred on to do something. And I think the the naming of it as an emergency, if we're going to um, compare it to the Second World War, and I've just been reading yet another novel about the Second World War, and the way people resisted occupation, resisted... Um, the march of Nazism in their countries in Europe where they were actually um, contaminated with it and overrun by it and yet they still resisted and you can't really identify which level of resistance was the magic that turned it around except for the combination Mm. of it all and um, how important it was for people to do that and to feel some hope for their future because they're actually saying we're going to oppose this downward spiral, we're going to um, invest in the future and even even many of them of course risk their lives and pay with their lives but on the other hand they were saying we want to have a future for the, for the people we love, our future generations ourselves. I think we do have to take on a bit of that mentality that we have to um, stop using all of our energy to get ahead in this system. You know, um, Do you spend all your time trying to um, be entrepreneurial in a sense of gaining, just just for the sake of gaining that security of lots of money? Um, People still need to earn a living. I I understand that. But shouldn't we select um, how much time we put into that? Maybe our choice of work, is it going to benefit the world, even on a very small level? Um, And... Not, I think what's happened to people is um, we don't have that part of our lives put aside for perhaps activism, um, being very involved in politics so we make our members of parliament re- react appropriately. We've, we've, we've been lulled into thinking our big responsibility is to pay our rent and basically keep our mouths shut, <laughs> don't complain, um, and gain materially without thinking where that's coming from or where that's going. So there's a lot of cultural shift. And I actually think people, many people, I won't say all, respond to wanting to make their lives meaningful and more worthwhile and to leave something behind that's worthwhile. And maybe we need to reconfigure that from how much money we think we're going to leave behind to what good have we done, what good can we do.
2: Yeah, and I've actually read some. Um, There's a study that um, was done at Yale about communicating climate, mm-hmm. um, and you know, one of the messaging that they were talking about was actually talking about being you know, pro-planet and the actual and talking about the longevity of the planet, um, mm-hmm. and putting it in those terms rather than oh, here's this great threat that we're facing,
0: yeah. um,
2: but kind of um, turning that around and and. Being um, you know, pro planet and pro longevity of this home that we have.
0: Well, it's a it's a it's a sort of problem there because I think I do a bit of work helping activists who get quite burnt out and downhearted in their work sometimes, um, working to save the planet. And for them, they really need to to hear the positive, to, to feel. Um, valued, to feel empowered. But but for the people who are only too willing to switch off, the language of being pro-planet is like, oh, greenies, tree huggers. Um, they can switch off from that. I think there has to be a balance between recognising, well, you're not just, it's not just about being pro-planet. It's about being aware that we could lose the planet. Um, if you think about how we, we try to look after our children, we take care of them best when we're aware also of what the dangers could be. We don't let them, leave them alone in a swimming pool. We worry about swimming pools that don't have gates on them. We don't let them run on the road. We don't just say, oh, I'm pro-child. I'm just going to mm-hmm. give my child a great life experience. I'm not denigrating what the study's saying. I think I think it's a balance. I think it's managing both. Mm. Um, and pay, maybe teaching people to invest in being pro-world pro, pro world rather than nationalistic or just just concerned about your own tiny world
2: yeah yeah i think that's an important part and, and i suppose that's you know those that type of messaging has been around for a while the kind of catch cry you know um, yes. think global act local um, yes. and certainly in the communication of that uh you know there's lots of things about you know focusing on, well, what's the immediate impacts of climate change right now, you know, to mm-hmm. try to bring in that immediacy. And then, well, what's the local impacts of mm. of that? And what does that mean for your local home, your neighbourhood, your community, yeah. uh, your area? Um, and then, yeah, looking at the longevity of, of the planet and, and humanity. Because um, okay. the fact is, you know, the planet will continue. Um, mm. But the fact is what we, you know, the systems that we have built up and the places we live mm. and the um, relative stability that we've had certainly in, um, you know, in the climate and, and the systems that we rely on and the agricultural systems, etc., cetera, uh, are looking like, a, you know, a future that could be vastly different. Um, mm. And that brings on um, so many implications. And unfortunately, what we've seen to date is that, know, certainly, things like our south pacific neighbors um mm. you know those those countries that have actually had the the least impact and that the lower mm. levels of consumption are actually feeling the effects of these these things first um, mm. which which is you know another unfortunate thing because uh you know, they're probably the people that least need reminding of of um of yes businesses. and they're
0: very in touch with the um, natural world, and they, they know they know what happens if they don 't respect the earth um, yes it's it's a fine line, but I think what is also being responded to is well what what 's needed and what are people where are people at and I think initially science was very loath to shut down the alarm mm. and they were looking at projections that were horrifying, but they are cautious as science scientists mm. are not the kinds of communicators that do convey alarm. They always sound so, so calm when they're talking about coral bleaching and
1: <laughs>
0: or whatever. Um, but so there needed to be this communication of the science that was comprehensible to the public, but that was, had the right sort of feelings around it. Um, the right sort of emotional responses to it. Um, If, you know, rather than saying, well, it looks like uh, mankind could become extinct by the end of the century. What? You know, know, your grandchildren could experience a a terrible world. Now it's your children. Now it's you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Because um, they're talking about the next 11 years, 11 or 12 years is the window for us to avert drastic climate catastrophe.
2: Yeah.
0: And from then on, it's a bit like, well, you... I, I think analogies that might get through to people are analogies about the body, but even there, not necessarily. Once you've got to a certain point of smoking, the lung damage is so great, you can't repair the lung. Um, people say, well, I could have a lung transplant. But mostly... Um, when the organs start to fail, your, your life is over. And that's exactly what can happen to the earth. The Earth organ failure in the sense of what sustains us, you know, the uh, right temperature that we can live at, the right temperature that crops can grow, the right temperature that we have enough precipitation to grow the crops. Um, yes, we can change what we grow. Yes, we can change how we farm. But we can't all live on the outer reaches of Antarctica, not the entire world. Um, no,
2: and the, the time frame, you know, those things, uh, um, you know, things like we're seeing, um, you know, fish in, turn up in Tasmania that uh-huh. have never been seen there before um, uh-huh. because of ocean temperature changes. Uh, and, and these things that are happening so quickly that it, that it is so hard for us to keep up with, yeah, um, you know that—that's sort of the trouble
0: with that. But yeah, and if—if if as a psychologist, I think a therapeutic change when people come, something's not working for them. They're very unhappy. They're not sure what it is. We have to work out what's going on for them. We have to face it. Now, if take a simple analogy of they're drinking too much, and it's causing a lot of things to go wrong in their life. The first thing you yeah, have to have um, to. It's a cliche, but they have to admit, "Oh, my drinking is a big problem." Yes, I'm not getting on with my partner. Yes, I keep losing my job. Um, Yes, um, my liver's in trouble. But we can't just work on those each of those problems separately. The root cause is the drinking. Well, that fossil fuels are alcohol, Mm. and we have to. The world has to wake up to it being destructive, dangerous, um, driving us as a species and many other species that we rely on to extinction. So we have to face that. And in therapy, what you need is facing the truth, support in facing the truth and ways in which you can now act that are conducive to a better outcome. Mm. It's whatever funny because whatever state they're in
2: as you're talking about that I'm thinking of a place like China mm. now you know different political system um, mm-hmm. that has its you know pros and cons obviously but with this this issue, the long-term thinking that China' has been able to put in place and it's interesting when we kind of break it down and think about the immediacy. so yeah. for them a lot of the immediacy came from air quality. So, so kind of an an element within the broader um, issue, but mm. but an an element that gave great immediacy within their cities to mm-hmm. move to things like electric buses, for instance, for, mm. for mass transit. Um, but also because of their um, you know single government, um, you know, obviously from a communist tradition, although there's mm. there's a lot more you know free market and things like that now that ability to do that um, mm-hmm. has, you know, their long-term planning is beyond political cycles, which we mm-hmm. get caught up in. Um, yes. So the ability to have leadership mm-hmm. and to make decisions based on, you know, scientific evidence mm-hmm. um, and not, uh, you know, this be, they're being swayed and influenced by lobby groups, et cetera. I mean, I'm mm-hmm. sure there's a lot of that within there. But it just... Um, it's interesting when we were talking earlier about um you know people's thinking beyond just just you know getting through the week and paying the bills yeah. etc. cetera um, when you think of a country like that who who in actual fact whilst um they've been a contributor um they are also doing a lot of positive mm-hmm. things and having the political will and leadership um to just lay those those mm-hmm. laws down and, and make those changes, which when we're talking about, you know, what individuals can do and we're coming into, mm-hmm. um, you know, an election's going to be announced kind of any day um, mm-hmm. in Australia, um, climate is high on the agenda.
0: Yes, and I'm no expert on China, but I'm wondering whether, as you speak of individuals and you speak of China, they do have a collective um understanding of responsibility even with the family or the near family or um you you think collectively rather than individually there are other countries like that so maybe it it becomes easier to translate that into thinking about all of china and future generations um And they've shown a a capacity to shift their responses, like they have the one-child policy, and they've realised it's actually got lots of problems. So they've moved from that, Um, which, um, yes, uh, they're, they're very dictatorial. There's lots of human rights abuses. I don't diminish those. But we find it very hard to shift. And if we think of ourselves as a bunch of individuals... Maybe that's part of the problem, you Mm. know, and that sense of entitlement as an individual. Why should I do that? Yeah. You know?
2: Yeah, and I think, um, you know, that background and that that cultural awareness of collectivism Mm. has put them in a position to much more ably tackle Mm. this vast um, Mm. issue, which is outside of the hands of any one person or or organisation.
0: Yes, yeah. and uh, I think we look. We're also in the grip of neoliberalism, which discounts um, the good. The, the, it's interesting when you're you're thinking about what what your business plan is. It's always about profit and loss, and um, how you can maximise your profits, minimise your loss, and there's n- no consideration of what impact does... Producing fossil fuels have on the on the on the economy, yes, on people, um, on health, on future generations, and that's where we're missing out on that. Um, I think there
2: is a bit of a shift there. We've hmm. um, we've certainly featured on the show a couple hmm. of organisations who are doing. Um, well, well, along that, that sort of um, spectrum from diversity mm. to ethical investing to shareholder mm. activism, um, where they're actually kind of saying to those organisations, right, we want you to take account of this, or what is mm. your response to this? Um, mm. You know, to other organisations which are saying, well, okay, we're going to put together a, um, a list of, um, for example, mm. uh, ethical superannuation funds. Mm. So I think there is, and a lot of companies, at least um, forward-thinking companies, are starting to see, you know, we can't operate in this bubble of just just dollars and cents. To be truly sustainable, um, we need to think beyond that, and certainly organisations that come to mind like IKEA, who has a massive footprint of what their operations around the world do, um, but are starting to try to take that into account and... Um, with the actions they take and then also putting that onus on their supply chain. Yes. So so not saying that they're perfect, but at least that's part of the conversation.
0: Well, it's the signs, of, the signals of change. And going back to therapy, you see the green shoots in someone when they're starting to think beyond their usual um, way of looking at the world, which is actually needed for them to think beyond the usual way because, you know, if you keep doing what you've always done, etc., um, that that means you get... Similar outcome. I think all of that's really good. I think what is the problem? Emissions worldwide are still rising, mm. and global warming is accelerating. So that urgency, that um, that balance between okay don't feel nothing's happening because lots of people care and lots of people are trying. And I've met many of them personally and I've read about them and that's very encouraging. But the people that um, I feel are most in touch, David Suzuki, Al Gore, Greta Thurman, there's plenty of others, uh, David Attenborough, are all telling us that we haven't got time. Mm. There's no luxury to sort of gloat about you've put a solar panel on the roof that's good that's excellent but um it's a bit like if you're trying to improve your health don't go wow i went for a big walk today and i ate an apple instead of um a lolly (laughs) it's it's kind of like it's got to be massive mobilization and we have to get our heads around that all of us or enough of a, a, a a good even say a third i'll just pull out of That out of the air. 30% of people have to really be doing that, preferably 50, really seeing that, and then we'll get the change we need, hopefully.
2: Yes. Well, look, on that note, Lynn, um, we'd probably better wrap up. Um, But look, I really appreciate you coming on the show today and talking about this important, super important issue that we we kind of tackle from all different angles Mm -hmm. every week. Um, But I think it is uh, really important that. We do look at um, engendering in people the urgency and immediacy mm. of the issues whilst yes. still getting them to, um, as you mentioned at the start of uh, our discussion, um, not go from denial to despair. We need action. Yes.
0: And I think, you know, if we're, if we're thinking about what we can do as individuals, is have these conversations now. Um, what I'm I'm shocked about is how few people actually talk about it the media as well they talk about projections without talking about except the projections for um, climate change of this they talk about them as though they're endless longevity for example so if we bring it into our conversation we don't participate in that denial we talk about it Um, that's helpful because otherwise it's the we're participating in suppressing that. So your radio show is excellent. That's part of it. And we all need to have these conversations with our neighbours and friends and family. Yeah, excellent. And there are
2: a lot of resources out there for people that that do want to do that. Um, Mm. Certainly... um, you know, our organisation, Beyond Zero Emissions, obviously, is, is continuing mm. to do research into a whole lot of different areas. But but things like the Climate Council have some great guides on how to you know, debunk myths um, mm-hmm. and things like that. So if you are having a conversation with a work colleague or a neighbour or something like that, you know, and you do feel like you need to arm yourself with some resources, there are some great resources mm-hmm. out there to assist people.
0: Exactly. And climate, climate Psychology for a Safe Climate also has some resources.
2: So that was a conversation that I had earlier today with Lynn Bender from Psychology for a Safe Climate. And as we said, it's really important that people do engage and that they don't just um you know, think it's all too hard. So it's important that we think about the way that we're messaging around this topic.
1: Cyclone is pretty green. Shock on the climate change. change. God you ever feel like just switching off? Well, don't. Switch on to Beyond Zero Emissions Community Radio Show every Monday at 5 pm on 3CR and beat the doom and gloom to find out the latest actions and research in your community. VZE Radio at 5 pm on Monday. Turn the tide, literally.
2: 3CR Radio that's independent, progressive,
0: and making a difference.
2: Listeners, you're on the Beyond Zero Emissions show with Erin Jones, and we've got Louise Page on the line. And I'm pleased to have Louise back on the show. We've been speaking to Louise from time to time um, about the Save Western Port campaign that she's highly and heavily involved with um, and doing some great work. And uh, we spoke last time back in November. But, Louise, let's just give our listeners a bit of an idea of, of what the campaign involves and what the key issues are where you've been to, and um, where we are today, and going forward.
1: Sure, thanks, Erin. Um, it's, it, there's been a lot happened since last November, that's for sure. But um, just to let everybody know what the campaign is actually about, AGL are proposing to install a floating uh, import gas terminal in Western Port Bay in Victoria, and it will involve, or would involve, I should say, a three hundred metre long ship which would be permanently moored, would be permanently moored in Western Port, and it is a regasification, well it has capacity for regasification of LNG, so the idea would be that uh, AGL would like to import gas, so that would come in on LNG tankers and it would be unloaded into the floating, what's called an FSIU, which is a floating storage regasification unit. That would regasify the LNG. And in that process, it uses a, an enormous amount of live seawater. So, sucking in seawater up to 450 million litres of water per day to warm up the LNG to, to actually regasify it. So, the seawater that's sucked in is then um, discharged, dead, and chlorinated. So, that's you know, you're sucking in all the organisms, everything, killing it off and spitting it out again. Mm. And so the other, you've, you've got that impact and you've also got the fact that uh, Western Port doesn't have anything like that currently. In fact, there aren't even any FSIUs in Australia. So the permanent mooring of this vessel, so you've got the lights, the noise, everything that is associated with it. So, And we're talking about an area that is Ramsar listed for its migratory birds. So mm. it's a, an internationally recognised wetland. Uh, the, we have many extraordinary and unique uh, natural assets of Western Port, which, which uh, are irreplaceable, of course. And it is a really... Uh, it's, it was southernmost mangroves, for example... So we we can look at wetland as being a carbon sink and so on. I mean, there are so many aspects to this that don't make sense. So I should perhaps finish so people understand, stick to my story, which is uh, the other part of AGL's proposal is to build a pipeline from Crib Point to Pakenham. So we're looking at 55 kilometres so that the gas that they would like to regasify can be piped to Pakenham and join in the transmission, Melbourne's transmission line there. Now that's that in itself is a is a huge undertaking because they need to clear 30 metres wide to install the pipeline, and then a 15 metre easement would remain. So you multiply, you know, it's a, that's a big area, 55 kilometres by 30 metre wide. That's a lot of vegetation or farmland, agricultural areas that have to be cleared. So that's, that's the proposal. It has its two parts. It has the pipeline and it has the floating regasification unit at Crib Point. So the reason we have taken up this fight against AGL doing this is not just for the immediate environment of Western Port Bay. It's also because Australia is the largest exporter of gas in the world. And we are now talking about importing gas. And I don't see how anybody, anybody could think that that is not one of the most ridiculous things we've ever heard, especially when you look at the uptake of renewables. So we're going to be potentially, because there are actually five FSIUs Um, on the drawing board at the moment for south-east Victoria. We're potentially going to be bringing gas back to Australia, which means it's approximately 20% uh, more in emissions because of the, obviously, transportation and the regasification and things like that, Um, and back into a country that's the largest exporter.
2: It's kind of ridiculous when you frame it in those ways. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, the domestic reserve is, is a big issue. Most countries have it. So WA decided on 15%, had to be kept back for domestic use and um, the the southern, southeast and southern states have, sorry, eastern southern states have uh, what the federal part, the federal government could implement, um, there is a, a mechanism that can be triggered if there's a gas shortage. So we really, I and mean, in the AMO report that came out recently about, of potential shortages coming up, that should be enough for the government to trigger uh, this domestic reserve rather than looking at establishing more infrastructure around gas.
2: Mm, exactly. And I mean, beyond um, things like domestic reserve policies, the fact is we cannot be continuing to engage in fossil fuels.
1: So we are... Uh, locked into international prices mm-hmm. we then perhaps have a problem with the exchange rate yep. and all of this is going on for something that is so nonsensical from the beginning i can't even imagine who at agl thought that a ramsar wetland was a good place for a you know that even if we have to have floating gas um import terminals that you would think that a Ramsar wetland was a good place to do that.
2: Yeah, I mean, we've already got you know industrial ports that are purely for that purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to do it there. So, so tell our listeners then where things are up to in terms of um, how far along the road in terms of approvals is this project. Sure.
1: So um, the what's the EES, as um, some of us know, is the Environment Effects Statement. That the government announced last year that AGL would have to go through that process. So over the Christmas period, which of course was not the best timing for people to put in submissions about and that sort of thing. So we, but I won't go into the detail of timing. Um, but the the draft scoping requirements. So what AGL will have to do to meet, you know, to try and address the the issues and um, meet what the government are expecting of them. Those requirements were set out over Christmas and in January and then they're now finalized and we have had more meetings this year to hear what AGL have to say about what they'll be doing. So at the moment um, AGL are doing the studies that they feel need to be done to prove this won't have an effect. Um, But I mean obviously that from our perspective there are certain things you simply can't mitigate like long-term unknown outcomes because if they're only doing studies this year it's very hard to imagine how you can model what potentially might happen you know over a long term um so that's what where we're at at the moment uh we continue to campaign and do various things some people some of your listeners may have seen that we had a really successful paddle out in January which uh, got national cover- coverage, which was really great we had in three weeks we managed to organise two thousand people to come and five hundred people to go out onto the water. Uh, we've had we had a twilight cruise to celebrate World wetlands Day on uh, Western port. that was a really lovely evening. so there's been all sorts of things that have... what's the political flavour in the area? Well, it's been really interesting actually because um, I've been talking to some of the candidates quite a bit and the message is absolutely clear that this proposal is, if not number one, number two on people's list of priorities, which I have found really both heartwarming because I feel like we've, managed to raise the awareness of it and also because you know people care they care very deeply about what's happening in on the peninsula and western port so the candidates for the federal election are very very well aware of community sentiment, and i know that as they've been out in the streets they have found that every single person they speak to is against it and i've had the comment that comment, and in one case there was one person in Hastings who said that they were for the proposal. So that gives you an idea of, mm. of, it's and intimate. that's across the board. So that's Liberal, Labor, Independent, whoever—all mm. the same story. Um, Look, Louise, we probably need to,
2: to wrap up. So yes, for yes. our listeners that, you know, may have heard of this a while ago, or this may be the first time they're hearing about it. Where can they get more information? What are the actions um, you know, coming up in the, in the near future that they might be able to engage in?
1: Sure. Well, the, the biggest one for, uh, we've done recently is uh, we've now got a federal petition. We have had petitions previously, and they were really just to get the EES happening. But as of last week, we have now got a federal petition so that's really targeting the the Commonwealth responsibilities for Ramsar. Mm-hmm. So that's, that can be signed online or on paper. Uh, and if you go to our website, so savewesternport.org, you'll be able to find. You'll see the the news link there about the federal petition. And we're just about to actually connect it up to our Take Action. So it'll be you know in a week it'll be set up a bit better because we've only just done it. Uh, so that's that's the best thing to do is just to go to savewesternport.org dot org, and you'll find everything that's going on and other information on that site. Because you can then go to Facebook, Twitter, Instagram.
2: Okay, fantastic. Well, look, um, I think it's important that we keep uh, keep in touch and see where this is at because it's a prime example of a local impact, but that has you know global consequences and adds to that bigger picture of, of continued fossil fuel use, which we've got to um, immediately move from. So, yeah. Thanks so much, Erin. I really appreciate it. No problem. Good to talk with you, Louise, and we'll, we'll
1: be in touch. Okay, thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
2: So I hope you enjoyed today's show. Uh, It's always my pleasure to bring it to you. As always, if you've got any comments, um, you can contact me on Twitter. That's probably the easiest, at EJ4573. And um, stay tuned for the next show that's about to come up. But for now, it's goodbye.